Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Oh my gosh, Trish. I have started to do something very childish mm. and immature in the name of a snack. Oh, God. <laughs> Go on then. So I look forward to some nice snacks mm. that you know might spend a bit more money on luxury snacks yes I call them. um but the teenagers in my house there's three of them they just eat everything they're like they just eat everything <laughs> yes they're like locusts aren't they yeah they just swarm all over the house so i've i've started to hide food mm, yeah always <laughs> which, is, which is not what i thought i would be doing in oh, in my oh, 50s so do you know where i put my food my oh, uh, particularly crisps because they're all over crisps yeah aren't they? The salty snacks um, i put them in the tumble dryer <laughs> You see, I would put mine in the tumble dryer, but you know somebody who likes going into the tumble dryer? Oh, not that cat. (laughs) You'd be on one of those witch shows about tumble dryers killing cats. Being turned on, exactly. I'm terrified that one day she likes a warm tumble dryer. She always hops in when I'm taking out the towels. It's very annoying. And then you'd have to fess up to it and you'd be arrested by the RSPCA, wouldn't you? Wouldn't be good. Wouldn't be good. You'd say I did it and then all the evidence would point to me, wouldn't it? Because I don't (laughs) like Margot, do I? (laughs) Exactly. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Trish Halpin. And I'm Lorraine Candy, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Trish and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. So here we are recording this episode on a Friday morning. The sun is shining. The weekend is nearly here. And I'm sensing you're a little bit more excitable than usual today, Lorraine. Well, yes, I'm like um, a mark up on my giddiness levels today (laughs) because I'm going down to Cornwall on the train because I've got to go without my husband, but with my Mabel. So I've got, you know, wetsuits ready. Got my Mm -hmm. little bikini out because the sun's out. You jealous? You want to see me in a bikini? I might be jealous of the Cornwall, not sure about the bikini, but yes, because at the moment, actually, all I've got planned for the weekend is getting my second vaccine jab. So I think you definitely win on on best weekend situation. But I am excited about meeting today's guest, who I'm sure we're going to have a bit of a laugh with, as she is comedian, Rosie Wilby, also known as the Queen of Breakups. She's going to be sharing some of the many things she's learned over the years about dating, love, sex, and getting over heartbreak. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yes, so we're also going to be talking talking about our own careers as glossy magazine editors and sharing some little vignettes of the glory days as I like to read. Oh Trish this is an opportunity for quite a lot of name dropping. Oh, definitely it? you're going to be going quite for a it. Hobby. Aren't you? I should be on Olympic levels mm. with this. We're talking about the lives we used to lead once upon a time from the catwalks of New York, Paris and Milan to the shabby offices of Canary Wharf. <laughs> We've been everywhere and yes, done it all haven't we? We have and talking of offices lots of you are sharing on our Facebook group the 
work you're doing to get menopause talked about in the workplace. And we're just really proud and really delighted that these podcasts are empowering women in all areas of their lives to help make the change that's needed around this topic. Yes, we had a really great post from Amanda on our private Facebook page. Um, She says, I've just attended the first menopause group meeting at my place of work. Really well attended, lots of interest in creating something positive. Postcards from Midlife has helped me a lot these past weeks. Oh, it's so nice to hear that, isn't it? And I can see how it helps others when I read the posts on the Facebook group. So I took the opportunity to do a shameless plug for the Facebook page and the podcast because the more the merrier, as they say. Thank you very much, Amanda. Do keep posting about us and telling us all the positive things you're seeing and experience around menopause and perimenopause because we're only going to change this together if we start talking about it, aren't we? I think we've created a movement, Trish, haven't we? I think so. They're going to be talking about this in years to come as the menopause moment. But yes, it's great to be part of it. And on the subject of menopause, in How to Win at Midlife, we're going to be talking about what happens after the menopause. Should you come off HRT? Will symptoms return? We have the answers to all those questions and more. So do keep listening. for this week's jibber jabber it might be fun to share with you what it's like to be a glossy magazine editor because Lorraine and I have notched up quite a few between us yes so listen to the list of magazines we've edited I can't quite believe we've done this Mm. it feels like a whole lifetime ago so between us we've edited Sunday Times Style, Marie Claire, Elle, Red, InStyle and Cosmo. It's it's quite a list, isn't it, Trish? I feel yeah. quietly proud of myself. Oh, I think you should. It's a proud day today, isn't it? Well, we have been around the block a fair yes. bit. So I think that's what we're also trying to say, haven't we? But our memories aren't quite what they used to be. So we've picked just rubbish. three things each. A pinch me moment, a really glad I did that achievement. And uh, well, that wasn't my best idea when we tried but failed or just simply cocked something up. So over to you, Lorraine. I'm expecting a massive name drop for your pinch me moment so far yes. away well I don't like to disappoint <laughs> not that I'm in any way quietly competitive with you so my pinch me moment in my 4010 years as a magazine editor was in uh, was it was the December 2014 issue of L. so I edited L for 12 years and absolutely loved it loved the team had the most brilliant team and I don't, you can't quite believe this, but the first ever feminist issue of Elle was, was the one we did in December 2014. It hadn't really been done before. The word wasn't even used on the cover of mm-hmm. magazines up until about the mid-noughties anyway on magazine covers. So what I did, which was absolute pinch me moment for me, we put Emma Watson on the cover because she was at the beginning of her goodwill ambassadorship for the UN. And she was launching the He for She campaign in New York, which was to get men at the top in the corridors of power more engaged with women's rights and equality Mm -hmm. and so I went with Emma to the UN headquarters in New York um, Mm -hmm. to see her give her speech it was just it's just extraordinary being outside the UN and then flashing a VIP pass to go Mm -hmm. in (laughs) if you told me I'd be doing that when I was at Comprehensive in Liscard in Cornwall I just simply wouldn't have believed you anyway it followed on from an issue we had done the year before asking if feminism needed a rebrand where we'd worked with an ad agency to create a Mm. video that rebranded feminism 
Britain and it, it went viral, actual viral. I know everyone says that, but we had 187 million uh, reached on Twitter. CNN wow. interviewed yeah. me. Brilliant. It was a kind of global campaign mm-hmm. because, you know, feminism did need a bit of a rebrand. Um, and then we also put Emma Watson on the cover when she did uh, left Harry Potter, her first ever magazine cover. And so, so we had a good relationship with her. And it was just such an amazing moment, A, to be in New York, to be interviewing a cover star I interviewed her on a park bench actually after she'd done a speech because <laughs> oh, we had to sort lovely. of get our heads together and we just yeah. sat in Pen- Central Park on a bench it was sort of lightly raining and people kept coming up to, to get um, Hermione autographs oh. and then when I got back we launched a sort of mini project with schools across the country under the He for She banner and we talked to loads of organisations about it it was just it really felt like a proper moment in magazines mm. and a lot of people will say don't they about glossy magazines it's just fashion and beauty yeah. so they don't change yeah. Yeah. lives they don't and it did change lives it yeah. did make a difference so yeah that was my pinch me moment oh. what was your pinch me well moment? I've gone a bit lighter um on my pinch me moment because I wanted to talk about fashion shows because I kind of did a quick bit of maths and I worked out that over 20 years two seasons a year at least 30 shows minimum per season <laughs> I've been to about over a thousand fashion shows but the best one ever was actually the last one I went to before leaving Marie Claire. It was in Marrakesh with Dior for their cruise collection. So anyway, about 10 years ago, luxury labels added this extra show, didn't they, to the calendar for their cruise collections, which come out in December and January for all those rich people going on cruises. And they were very exclusive. They aren't like the normal Milan fashion shows. You only get invited and hosted by the brand. I mean, it took place in this stunning ruins of this 16th century palace in the middle of Marrakesh with huge fire torches everywhere. And the runway was around this massive big water beach with floating candles I mean it was just amazing but the after party was in this little sunken courtyard really small very intimate and uh there was a special guest you know who it was this is a good name drop is it JLo no better Diana Ross Oh, my God. I was standing, literally, she had this tiny little raised platform. I was standing right in front of Diana Ross. I could have reached out and touched her. Did you get that? Reach out. (laughs) (laughs) She had this amazing silver sequin sort of beautiful dress that uh, Dior had made for her. But she was wearing, and I could see because I was literally at her feet, fangirling. It's an underwear situation. No, well, it's a, it's a tight situation. She was wearing a cork wedge sandal. I'm thinking yeah. comfort under the dress. Yes. And um, what looked like thick tights in Marrakesh. Really? But it didn't matter. Diana was... Ross feels the cold. <laughs> it was boiling. What did she anyway, sing? that was, oh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. I'm coming what? out. All of it. All of oh. it. Diana Ross, all-time icon. So that was my little pinch me. Now, tell me you're glad I did that moment. Well, this one involves a caper, basically, which <laughs> we, uh, in my last couple of years at Elle, we really embraced the digital mm. expansion of magazines. So we worked across both the print and the website. And I thought, how would you make a magazine come to life digitally? So we built the office, rebuilt our whole office around the glass fashion cupboard. We stripped mm. out the whole of the third floor of the building, put the glass fashion cupboard in the middle and got rid of everyone's individual offices. And we hot desked around mm-hmm. it so that it would provide loads of digital content all the mm-hmm. time. It could be 
live all the time. We had cameras in there. And it was so much fun, A, working around it, because it meant our interns who were working on the subs desk or something like that got to see all these amazing clothes oh, coming yeah. in and out. So it's really beautiful to see. And then the other reason we did it was so that we could film things in it, because mm-hmm. I knew video was going to be a really big thing going forward. And when the Muppet film came to London <laughs> as a premiere, we rang them and said, could we have Miss Piggy oh, in the office, please? Brilliant. Thinking they would say, don't be silly. That's a ridiculous yeah. question. And they said, yeah, we'll bring her in. We'll bring the whole of the, they brought all of it. They're all the runners that the puppets went on. And um, with Anne-Marie, the fashion director, Mm. we interviewed Miss Piggy in the cupboard. Absolute pinnacle of your career. Yeah. I know. And then it got better because then Star Wars was premiering. And I said, can we have BB-8 in the cupboard? (laughs) And they brought the little BB-8 robot. Oh, and he was whizzing around the, around the fashion, fashion cupboard. cupboard. Oh, that's and brilliant. I'm just so glad I sent oh. the letters. You know, I made yeah. the emails and I made the request. And oh. I, I know my publisher and the bosses looked at me as if I was crazy. Yeah, but these oh. were things that were watched you loads and loads of times. Are on a our, and they weren't person. I've gone the other way to you, and I've done my glad I did that as as a kind of campaigning thing, like your pinch okay. me because. Editing Marie Claire for over 10 years, obviously it was very famous for reportage, highlighting issues around women and girls uh, around the world, really. And it was, you know, it was the first magazine ever to report on FGM way before my time back in the Glenda Bailey days. Um, But we continued to do lots of campaigns around girls' education. And we actually won an Amnesty International Award uh, for, for a feature about rape as a weapon of war in the Congo. So back to your point, magazines, they were so important about highlighting these issues and I think now because you go to find your information or you find it virally or through kind of you know links and things whereas you know magazines it's all there isn't it and it's in there and it's it's kind of done in depth and you get the photos reportage I just think giving voices to women and girls you know it's just hugely important and I think we have magazines to thank for that because they were really powerful. We do because it's about recognising that women are all things and they can be as interested in the latest Chanel lipstick and still and want to spend that amount of money on lipstick Mm. if it's it's up to them if they want to do that and interested in what's happening all around the world and how they can support other women and I don't when you look at stuff like that online you edit your bubble you stay in a in a a place where you're only looking at what the algorithm of what you Mm. have previously looked at what magazines did was bring you a surprise something you didn't know Mm. and weren't expecting to read and I'm hoping that still lives somewhere across social media because I know my daughters don't really read magazines anymore which is you know they'll buy the kind of vintage ones but it is a bit sad isn't Mm. it so tell me um tell me it's not your best idea Trish do you want to start do you want me to do mine I'll do mine if you like well not my best idea (laughs) was putting Sasha Baron Cohen on the cover (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Well, it was when he was doing that film called Bruno, in which he was um, that gay yeah. fashion journalist from Austria. Yes. And he gate crashes all the fashion shows. And obviously, he'd had this huge success with the Borat film. So we thought, oh, let's put him on the cover. It's like when he used to occasionally do stunt covers. And we had him with that amazing supermodel, Alessandra Ambrosio. You know her. Yeah. She's like one of those amazing super. Uh, supermodels and uh, he arrived in character complete with his own clothes which did of course include a gold thong and he ended up wearing a, a sort of leopard print vest and wife front pants on the cover 
<laughs> while okay. Alessandra was wearing this amazing kind of stunning Versace sparkly dress. Anyway, it bombed. Nobody bought it, which, oh. as you know, God, you get it in the neck, don't you, when that happens? Why well, you all get like, oh, brutalised by the bosses? Last cover and the bosses, they're like, oh, I knew that wasn't a good idea, and all of that. So that that probably wasn't my best idea. What about you? Well, mine goes a bit further back in time when I was working on the launch of the Saturday Times magazine when it mm. went from print to glossy, and I was the deputy editor. And at a very pivotal time of us about to launch, she, the editor, lovely Jill, went on holiday, mm. and I thought she, I was in charge for the week and working at Wapping in the big open plan offices there. And I was in charge of the team. And mm. I thought, well, it cut, you know, she's obviously gone away at a time when it's really quiet. There'll be no one around to see us. I'll just quietly get on with it. But in my lunch hour, because we were a very close team and I'm very close to them now, that sort of family, we used to play butthead, which oh. is where you put Velcro bonnets on and yeah. throw things at each other yeah. and see where it sticks. So we were having a riotous butthead session when everyone in front of me went quiet and I thought that's a bit weird why have they stopped playing butthead and when I turned around at lunchtime behind me mm-hmm. was Rupert Murdoch <laughs> and the editor of the Times Peter oh my god and I was stood looking at him with a velcro hat on with this large bright yellow ball stuck yes, inside of nice. my head yeah and they said can we have a look at some of the new pages, the pages. And I said, yes, obviously be with you just remove like that you and then fired. I had to pretend no one mentioned it oh. and then I had to just carry on as if nothing had happened it was the weirdest Brilliant. weirdest thing it Rupert. wasn't my best idea perhaps no. during that week I should have been on my best behavior not my silliest oh. behavior this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now it's time for our guest interview. Rosie Wilby is an award-winning comedian, podcaster and journalist who has performed at major festivals including Glastonbury, Edinburgh and Latitude, as well as writing for The Guardian, Sunday Times and New Statesman. She's been dubbed the Queen of Breakups following the success of her podcast, The Breakup Monologues, which she has now turned into a book called The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. 
In it, the self-styled lesbian Louis Theroux puts her own relationships under the microscope, exploring both the heartache and empowerment that can happen after being dumped. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Rosie. Well, hello. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to put you on the spot a bit. Um, Let's start with a joke. You are a comedian in your (laughs) midlife, the menopausal years, and you know a lot about breakups. So hit us with a good one. Well, comedians all dread being asked this question because we always think, oh, my God, you know, actually, do any of my jokes actually stand up out of context? Have Mm -hmm. I been blagging this career for the past 15 years? And uh, people always ask you, tell me a joke, whether it's the dentist Mm -hmm. giving you a filling or the doctor giving you a smear test. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, you always ask, tell us a joke, tell us a joke. Um, But this is very silly, but I do always say that the reason I began investigating breakups in my work was because I got dumped by email 10 years ago, although I did feel much better about it once I'd corrected her spelling and punctuation. (laughs) Oh my God, that's what Trish would do to me. I do that to you always correcting everything. (laughs) Actually, when I changed the font, that was quite good. Oh, yeah. Break up in wingdings looked quite nice, really. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So the book is brilliant. Um, Absolutely love it. Such a collection of stories and a different take on kind of womanhood, I think, um, as well. So in the book, one of the things you talk about, it's one of the things me and Trisha are always discussing on our WhatsApp as well, is this kind of labelling of people, Mm. the boxing of people as they get older. So lesbian, queer, straight bisexual, mm-hmm. polyamorous, yeah. um, actually yep. very funny about polyamory um, and <laughs> fluid. Um, all of this is incredibly confusing because we live with teenagers as well. So the moment we say any of those words, they look at us like there's something terribly wrong with us and we've committed a <laughs> terrible crime and used these words in the wrong way. So we're all, always being told off for saying the wrong thing. How do these labels work? Because I think when you get to midlife, they, they don't really matter anymore, do they? Especially around sexuality. It is so interesting because things are becoming becoming more fluid and well you mentioned polyamory actually and I particularly love how for people who are exploring non-monogamous forms of relationships they've started inventing all their own new words like if you've reached your threshold of partners you can say that you're polysaturated (laughs) (laughs) which is a good one Um, so I think you're right that things are becoming a lot more fluid and maybe it doesn't matter so much now but I think when I came out in the 1980s it really was important you really had to be either gay or straight then and decide which you were things were seen as much more binary even though of course we now know human attraction and sexuality is way way more complex than that but I think for me it was important as a sort of political and cultural and social statement to come out as a lesbian as a gay woman and it was of course difficult times to do that but to be fair to my dear mum she was very very embracing of it and very excited about it in a sort of cringy slightly eddie from ab fab kind of a way and (laughs) did she have a party for you well almost she started telling me all about her and her friend joan who used to go on (laughs) holiday together (laughs) 
and they've been very, very close. And she started uh, finding books of lesbian poetry and reciting them at the table to the absolute horror of my dad Mm. and saying, oh, my goodness, I might have been a lesbian in a different era. And she got very, very excited about it, which was probably a bit too much for Mm. for me to deal with. You know, I was like the teenager going, "Mm, you know. Oh, just shut up, you know. Um, (laughs) But I do think now, I think you're right that we are perhaps at a time when the world is changing a bit and we can reflect on how sexuality is more complex than that. And in fact, in the book, I talk about going to a sex lab Mm -hmm. at the University of Essex where I am wired up to the machines to (laughs) measure my chapter to read on the tube, I can tell you. And so I'm shown some different images of women and men pleasuring themselves, shall we say, some erotic images. And what's really funny about this experiment is that the control clip that they show you in between the erotic clips is a David Attenborough nature documentary. (laughs) That's supposed to return you you to calm you down to a normal (laughs) state. I thought it was quite exciting, frankly. I suppose as someone who's lived in the lesbian community and written about heteronormative relationships, all relationships really from yeah. all points of view, how do yeah. we talk to our teenagers when they say, I think I love or I'm in love with someone of the same sex or someone who identifies as the same sex? Just listen and maybe don't go quite as overboard as my mum did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the last thing teenagers want to hear is about your parents' sexuality. But I think listen to them and let them be. And if they want to use a different pronoun, then use that allow them to sort of define how they want to be in the world and also accept that that may change that may be fluid so just to sort of listen to them about how they want to be and how they want to be addressed and and I guess the most important thing is to accept the partners that they do have probably the most painful experience in my life was when I was with a woman who was not out to her family and I only met her mum like once in five years for about 20 minutes and it felt awful to not feel like her family wanted to know so I think embrace the relationship if you can the one crumb of comfort that my girlfriend who was in the closet offered me was that her parents had quite enjoyed the film Brokeback Mountain (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was hardly giving this kind of sense of how well gay relationships could pan out yeah so that was a really difficult experience so I think if your teenagers are falling in love then get to know their partners get to know the people that they think are amazing and and find the amazing things in them too be there for them if those partnerships go horribly wrong (laughs) Mm -hmm. so we talk to a lot of women in midlife who have come out of long-term relationships with men and find themselves falling in love with a woman and they can feel they can feel a bit conflicted about it probably back to that kind of labels thing because they've probably thought of themselves as as hetero what's your advice there well firstly i'd say you've got a lot of homework to do on catching Mm -hmm. up on on being a queer woman you know you've got to listen to all of Katie Lang's back (laughs) catalogue you've got to get about two or three cats immediately with some sensible (laughs) shoes and a fleece I've got all of those things yes excellent (laughs) you're you're already become a late blooming lesbian should (laughs) you wish um no I think just to be aware that sexuality is fluid and it's fine. Just enjoy it. Have a have a wonderful time having a different 
type of adventure. But also remember that relationships are really universal. And actually, a lot of the things about being with a partner of the same sex are the same. I kind of find it really quite amusing when a lot of straight women say to me, oh, my God, I wish I was a lesbian. Men are so annoying. And honestly, once you get into the day to day humdrum reality of living with somebody and sharing domestic chores it, female partners can be really annoying as well and i've i've oh, been like presenting a podcast with someone <laughs> constantly oh, <Yes>. excuse you <laughs> so i think it's important i really took pains in the book to share those kind of petty annoyances that we have in relationships mm. whether we are with somebody of the same sex or not with the sexuality on that then only having had sex with a man I'd find it quite a different thing to explore the sexuality, the intimate physical side with a woman. Mm. And I think that's probably, probably some women find that quite frightening as they're falling in love with another woman at this stage. And because the whole thing is difficult at this stage in life anyway. What yeah. are your thoughts around that, the kind of physical intimacy of two oh. women for the first time, I guess, or one oh, I still find I still find it terrifying when I'm sleeping yeah. with another woman for the say for the first time mm. because <laughs> it's so complicated. I mean, even down to the sort of the etiquette about pubic hair. Gosh, I once emerged <laughs> from a relationship back in the 1990s when you know, our, during the time of our relationship, things had changed and it's, you know, the, the sort of small landing strip had come in rather than the <laughs> slightly more full muff. And I had to, fortunately, the young woman that I slept with for the first time after I'd emerged from this relationship, she took her pants off first, the hussy. And so <laughs> I had to go to the bathroom for a spot of emergency pruning. <laughs> um, but they, all these things are so complicated because I think women... Yeah. Women, when you're naked together, you, there's sort of, even though there's a wonderful kind of sisterly support between women, of course, there is also that need to compare yourselves. <laughs> and so I think a lot of insecurities about body, uh, body hair, um, body size and shape can yeah. can come into play when you are sleeping with another woman. But I think obviously sex between women can be wonderful and very emotional and connected. But I would also say it's possible, and some studies have shown, that we statistically seem to have less sex. But I think that's because it just takes so long. It's exhausting. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And... <laughs> Ah, gosh, um, I never thought about that. I mean, it probably does take longer than than well, yeah, one husband. <laughs> well, it kind of does. And what's funny is when I first started going out with my girlfriend, she had a male colleague who was asking her questions about it because we'd had this kind of marathon sex session when we first got together. I don't know. She was saying we'd been having sex for seven hours or something, and he was very interested. And I was like, oh, God, what did he ask? Thinking he would ask some very yeah. uh, personal questions about what we were physically doing but actually I was quite amused that his first question the first thing on his mind that he said was did you order a pizza <laughs> oh he's worried about the snacking in between he was yeah. worried about the snacking yeah. in between yeah. Oh. yeah calorie intake yeah, yeah. oh goodness <laughs> so the book is full of psychology stats and surveys about sex relationships and breakups and you make some very interesting and obviously very funny comments on those but I was fascinated to learn that you discover that women really are the often the instigators of breakups so what's going on there yes it's true uh women are mostly the instigators of breakups in heterosexual divorces we see that 75 percent of them 
are instigated by the women. Mm -hmm. And also in the gay world, we see that lesbians divorce at several times the rate of gay men. Mm -hmm. So there's something really interesting here, which I think harks back to the sex lab experiment that I did, where the results of these experiments usually show that women have a much broader and vaster sexuality, a kind of palette of desire, if you like, than we societally like to acknowledge. And women, whatever their socially defined label might be tend to be aroused by a whole variety of things and genders and and imagery and and so on and our sexuality is really complex and amazing and huge and we don't really acknowledge that we like to think that somehow female sexuality is smaller than male sexuality which is is so rampant and they need to spread their Mm -hmm. seed but actually in a very basic animalistic evolutionary sense females have needed to have sex with as many different partners as possible as well because then you get the sort of healthiest sperm and so on so <laughs> i think all these social Putting constructs that on my to-do list you know, <laughs> sex with as many different partners as for possible. seven hours yeah. <laughs> i think we don't like to acknowledge that women might have a sort of restless sexuality in just the same way as men i think it's quite normal and natural for us to fancy other people sometimes I mean then what we do with that is is a whole other thing (laughs) yes well you've got um well it's an interesting theory about the three stages of romantic progression so there's lust romantic love then attachment and many Mm. of us are getting the attachment bit wrong that's the confusing bit (laughs) that's where it all goes wrong so tell us about the stages and what you've discovered about our sort of realistic expectations of how a long-term relationship should pan out Yes, there's an anthropologist called Helen Fisher, who's done a lot of great work on these three stages of love. So there's lust, love and attachment. And there are very difficult, very different, sometimes difficult, (laughs) very different chemicals and processes going on in the brain during these three stages. And the phase that we seem to label societally and culturally as love is the middle stage, the romantic stage. That is the stage we see portrayed in all of the films and hear about in the songs. And often the film will end as the golden couple finally get together. And we don't actually see the real relationship pan out. So I think culturally we have this idea about what being in love is. And we think it's going to be all high and amazing and wall-to-wall sex from the chandeliers. And of course, We can't keep that up. It's not like that. You just have to have a life together and bring up your children or run a home together and get on with your careers, you know, hopefully as friends in a more companionate kind of way. Not that you won't kiss and cuddle and have sex now and then. <laughs> but it's not going but to be the same. That's the attachment bit, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of perfecting so that's the your attach- expectations around it. Yeah, that's the attachment phase, which I think a number of people mistake as falling out of love, if you like, but it's just moving into a different stage. Mm. What have you learned that makes you behave differently in your relationship, perhaps? I think there's an acceptance of the fact that there will be bad days when we have an argument or we're not getting on and things are not perfect. Yeah, I do kind of talk in the book about days when we really don't get on. I mean, actually, we really were under some kind of stress in the relationship when we got a dog because I'd not had a dog before and we got quite a crazy breed of dogs. (laughs) 
who, when she was a puppy, she was a bit unmanageable. She was just eating all of our glasses and knickers and um, one of my teenagers. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we wanted all that, we we could have had children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, pooing on the carpet. Goodness knows, oh, running God, off in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> all the same. It all sounds familiar, right? Yeah. That sort of did put a lot of strain on the relationship. But it's just about negotiating and just talking about, well, shall we get a dog walker to walk the dog you know on the days when you've got loads of work on so currently in love excellent you've had a lot of breakups and the guests you interview on the podcast have all sorts of interesting breakup stories too from the kind of sad to the surprising there's a a very funny one about your friend who thought she'd been ghosted (laughs) by a boyfriend but he'd actually gone to prison (laughs) (laughs) but for any listeners who are thinking about leaving a partner or in the middle of a breakup what would you say the kind of do's and don'ts what lessons have you learned on that Well, personally, I think you should always have a conversation because when I got dumped by email, which perhaps would Mm. seem quaint now in the era of ghosting, wouldn't it? I felt the relationship and the connection we had had, I felt it deserved some kind of face-to-face post-mortem and some kind of goodbye and farewell. I don't know, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, but I still think you should have a conversation if, you know, unless it's somebody abusive that you have to flee from Mm -hmm. for your own safety or your children's safety of course so I largely would say don't ghost them and and just disappear because I think that leaves somebody thinking what what on earth happened so the subtitle of the book is the unexpected joy of heartbreak what's that then can there be unexpected joy I think so I call it breakup energy Hmm. and I think once the dust has settled after a breakup and you have got through that really awful sad part where you you are in grief you are sort of withdrawing from a drug um living loss isn't it yes that's right oh you had a guest who was talking about that recently Mm, and I I found her very very interesting and I believe that after that period you are left with this sort of peculiar energy which can be very creative and transformative and it can be a very exciting time when we do have the freedom to work on ourselves and redefine ourselves and think about what choices we want to make going forwards. I know plenty of people who say that after a breakup is actually a great time to make career decisions and to go off traveling or go off on an adventure or really do something for you that you have perhaps been putting off because you didn't have the time or space when you were part of a couple. We talk to a lot of women who are dating again in their midlife. We had Rosie Green on who wrote about her divorce. Because you've spoken to loads of people who started dating again. I mean, maybe the last time we were dating, me and Trish Duran Duran were probably number one. So (laughs) I I have looked at Bumble and Tinder with friends of mine who are single, but it it just looks absolutely terrifying to me. It's so sexual as well, isn't it? Tamsin Althwaite came Mm. on, she said she suddenly realised in the middle of her dating adventure that she didn't have to find the one it was mm-hmm. a revelation to her she could just be having you know I mean she has found the one by the sound of it but mm. <laughs> it's a really hard thing to navigate this new world of apps and everything what what have you learned from the people you've talked to in that world now yes it is a weird and scary world and many dating commentators talk about the gamification of love in that it's yeah. become a bit like playing a game and the characters the people that you're dating feel somehow disposable so it is tricky I do think it's a a weird world and I think for heterosexual women in particular there's the paradox of choice in that there are so many options seemingly 
that it's hard to feel happy with one. Whereas as a gay woman, I've always found that I swipe through Tinder and then very quickly it'll say there's no new options around you because, of course, (laughs) statistically there are less people, there are less (laughs) options. So it's, it's a slightly different experience depending on where you sit on the sexuality spectrum. But I was doing a lot more online dating when I was younger. And I did once get sent my matches back to me back when I was on a a site that sent you your matches. And the only one they'd sent me was my own profile. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. The self-love. Narcissism. But the weirdest thing was they'd worked out that I was a 78% match. Oh, with yourself. God. Another woman um, brought a panel of her exes along, which was interesting. Excellent. That's interesting. But I had a friend who set her Bumble profile when she first started dating to her same age for men and was nothing, nothing there. So she set their age to under 35 and she was in her late 40s. Lots of boyfriends. Wonderful. Adventures. (laughs) She said it was such a revelation because she assumed, as Gen X, that younger men were looking for a very specific body type. And most of the younger men she met said, I'm not we're not looking for that at all. It's that's not it's it's a surprising journey as well, isn't it? Mm. But I mean, throw in a touch of menopause as well. to do all of this and it it can all get perimenopause can get a lot more complicated if you're looking for love isn't it and you know you're 50 now how has your midlife been and have you had to kind of cope with uh, perimenopause symptoms oh yes I mean actually they were probably physically worse in my early 40s when I suffered a lot with hormonal migraines I would often uh, be running off after a gig and find myself kind of going to be sick in the toilets after after I'd been on stage I was really having suffering with the migraines a lot but what's really interesting is listening to some of your guests and you did mention Rosie Green and I do feel in some ways I've been on almost the opposite journey some of these women who've been in heterosexual marriages and have recently become divorced whereas I'm now in a relationship where for the first time I've been able to get engaged and start planning a wedding it's really strange that In some ways, I feel as a midlife woman who's recently turned 50, I feel more visible. And I know many women feel less visible. But I think for me, because my relationship is more accepted, that sort of day to day way of being able to go about my life without facing so much prejudice actually outweighs the physical symptoms of perimenopause, annoying and inconvenient and awful as they can be. I think there's something much bigger that has happened in my life that has actually improved it, that that goes beyond personally, whether I (laughs) do sometimes feel exhausted or have horrible night sweats. And it is annoying. And I don't feel 100% some of the time. But like I say, this whole bigger thing has happened in my life, which has improved it, which outweighs that. But you also say in the book, I think it's a wonderful phrase that um, two women together after 40 is a bit, it's a Russian roulette of who's in whatever mood every day, isn't it? (laughs) But you have got someone, hopefully, in that kind of relationship, a slightly more understanding of it, perhaps because they've been through that kind of feeling do you are you on hrt and did it affect your libido because that's i mean the plummeting libido of the plummeting estrogen how did that pan out for you i haven't explored hrt yet because like i say i think the symptoms that i was experiencing were in my really early 40s Mm. and i suppose at that stage i didn't think 
I could be perimenopausal yet, which of course I was. It just goes on a very, very long time, doesn't it? Mm, Whereas yeah. now all those physical symptoms have died down a lot. But I also think my general mental and physical well-being has improved because I'm in a, a lovely relationship mm, and yeah. I think I feel better in my career and in myself. So all those things do play into how you feel physically day to day as well. So I have felt touch wood physically okay the last few years yes there are ups and downs but I haven't yet investigated HRT mm -hmm. I may still yet investigate it because of course I like many women recently watched the uh, Davina program yeah. Yeah. and thought gosh it really is preventative yeah mm. a revolutionary how things can change exactly well I think we want to talk a little bit about your career because being a stand-up comedian, how do you get into that? And Brave. why do you love it? Well, it's been weird lately because most of us stand-up comics haven't been getting our fix mm. of getting on stage because <laughs> all the gigs were cancelled. Um, and I was lucky to some extent that I was writing a book, so I had that distraction, certainly during the first lockdown. There's something wonderful about making a room full of people laugh. It's a way of communicating and being seen, which I think as a gay woman who, like I say, sort of felt invisible, also was a bit excluded at school, something I touch on in the book and how that colours mm. my kind of relationship experiences as an adult. I think it's important to feel like you can be in a situation where you have something to say and people are going to hear you and people are going to mm -hmm. listen to what you have to say. I think that's been really empowering for me. Yeah, it's thrilling. There are awful gigs, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we would assume that if you're a comedian, stand-up, you must have just oodles of confidence, bags and bags and bags of self-confidence. Is that true? No. Oh. I know so many very, very shy, introverted, unconfident comedians. We're very, very complex psychologically. Yes, there are some who are very, very extroverted mm -hmm. and... Uh, find some of them a bit annoying actually um, <laughs> but but I think most of us are quite complex quite needy or perhaps we feel there's some something some broken part of ourselves we're trying to fix by entertaining people <laughs> so there's I think there's quite a lot psych psychologically going on with why you want to go and do this sort of extreme form of therapy really uh, but I do talk in the book about how after my big breakup where I got dumped by email I sort of went through this process of making the memories less traumatic by sharing them with people and having people laugh mm -hmm. and enjoy the humor in them and the self-deprecation so I think that was my healing process really well, we can always do with a good laugh. And aside from reading your book and listening to your podcast, who would you recommend for our midlife audience to be tuning into? Yes. Well, one of my favourites is a friend of mine called Jen Brister, who's another gay woman who's recently written a book called The Other Mother about becoming a parent, but not the biological parent. So there's a lot of very universal stuff that she talks about, about being a parent and you know, how suddenly you have no time to yourself and she often finds herself eating a nice lolly hiding behind a bin. <laughs> <laughs> and she's starting to pop up on, on television and radio now, so she's definitely one to look out for. I've always loved Shazia Mirza. I've done many gigs mm -hmm. with her over the years. She's brilliant. And I also want to shout out to two fabulous women who were on my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, recently, Jessica foster who is wonderful. She has a podcast called Hoovering. And Jess it has a really interesting story, actually, which some of your midlife women who've sort of 
uh, come to relationships with women later in life might find interesting because she has recently started having a relationship with a woman after previously assuming that she was straight mm -hmm. and living in a heterosexual relationship and having a child with a man and so then sort of <laughs> navigating that uh, she she was very interesting about all of that so Jessica Fostke oh, and also uh, the wonderful Sindhu V was on my mm -hmm. podcast as well and she's mm -hmm. definitely worth looking out for too. I have learned so much about all sorts of things that's been absolutely brilliant <laughs> we wish you lots of luck with the book are you doing festivals this summer fingers crossed? Yes there are one or two things happening I'm just um, sorting them out at the moment but mm -hmm. yeah Underbelly Festival in London on August 7th. Oh Rosie that's so lovely to meet you, so great really nice to meet you thank you for taking the time and good luck with everything now we've discussed almost every aspect of menopause on this show but one thing we haven't covered is what happens after the menopause so in this week's how to win at midlife we're going to be doing exactly that don't worry we have spoken to an expert we're not just making this up so this advice is courtesy of the fabulous menopause specialist dr shazadi harper yeah there's been quite a few threads on our facebook group about this so because we're not medical experts and i think we should always add that on the facebook mm. group we have interviewed a lot so we do know a lot so trish i'm going to kick off and i'm going to ask you about it because i'm mm. a bit confused too does going on hrt delay the menopause so the menopause is when your period stops so does yes. does hrt delay it no, it doesn't. Shazadi says absolutely not, because what's happening during perimenopause is your ovaries are declining in function and will eventually stop functioning altogether. That's when you have your menopause. So the reason you get all those awful symptoms is due to the fluctuations in hormones during that decline. And once the ovaries stop functioning and you are through menopause and your periods have stopped, the symptoms should disappear as well. So how do I know then that that's happened and that after I know that, can I stop taking HRT? Well, the first thing Shazadi says is that why would you stop taking it? Because she says HRT yeah. isn't just for the here and now for menopause. It's also about the long-term protection for your health. So for your heart, your bones, and even um, to help uh, dementia, prevent dementia too. And you'll then be at risk of things like vaginal atrophy if you come off it where, you know, where the vagina shrinks and the walls become thin, which makes sex very uncomfortable. So she says that women should continue on HRT throughout their life, uh, but the dose gets tapered down as you get older and you go through your 60s, 70s and 80s. So for the purposes of this conversation, HRT is estrogen and progesterone. Some women get testosterone, but is there then, Trish, according to Shazadi, any need to ever come off HRT? Well, not unless women feel very uncomfortable taking it. She says that some right. women can find HRT initially. It might make them feel bloated and puffy. They might gain weight. And, you know, it can take a few months to kind of just get the right formulation and the right uh, way of taking it yeah. for you. But she says often when women come off it it's because they haven't given it long enough uh, and she believes that three months is a good period for it to settle down okay. but of course some women might just want to come off it and that's of course absolutely fine because that is an individual choice and also if you at some point are unfortunate enough to have a serious medical condition or illness such as breast cancer or blood clotting you know your doctor will review uh, whether you should be on HRT or not so it could be that you will come off at that time right 
So if you come off HRT, do your symptoms immediately return? Well, you might get some rebound symptoms if you abruptly stop. So Shazadi says that, that, you know, that can be the case with any kind of medication. So if you stop taking antidepressants, you can get an abrupt withdrawal reaction. Or if you stop something like reflux medication, you can get reflux symptoms. So she says you need to come off HRT slowly and taper your dose down after discussing it with your GP before doing so. And if you do start experiencing things like vaginal problems or pelvic floor issues, which is another one that HRT helps with, but you don't want to go back on HRT, you can try localized estrogen pessaries and creams, which will help. So you can ask your GP about those. Yeah, and that's a very good point, isn't it? Um, So it it all kind of boils down to the fundamental fact that we've got oestrogen receptors all over our body, the petrol of our body, as it were. And after the menopause, the money pause. Oh, I like that, Trish. (laughs) After my little money pause... um, we can't function without estrogen, can we? We we do need to replace it. Well, yes, exactly. That is the point about why we need to keep on H- taking HRT for our estrogen deficiency. So, you know, Shazadi explains that historically women were having their menopause years ago around 55, 54, 55, an average life expectancy was 59. So there's only a few years that women would be living like this. But obviously, thankfully, we're living 20, 30, and even 40 years longer than that. 50 in my case. 50, you're going to be 100. So we need some help. So Mm. she thinks, she says it's kind of, you need to have a bit of a mindset reshift and start thinking about it as one of your daily health supplements. Or, you know, once you're past menopause, start to call it underactive ovaries in the way that you would an underactive thyroid. So, So I think we need to think about it differently it's a really good point the mindset reset is what Mm. is needed around hrt because and often i repeat this on the facebook group there is no natural way Mm. to replace these hormones you've you've got to replace them with hormones so you are dealing with a deficiency and sorting it out as you would with supplements and other medicine around thyroids Mm-hmm. things that replace the thing that is missing so can i start taking hrt is it ever too late to start taking it do you think well anyone who's listening who hasn't been on hrt through their perimenopause but is thinking maybe they should be on it now for those other health reasons that we've mentioned the nice guidelines say that if you're under 60 you can be prescribed it or you can be prescribed it up to 10 years after your right. periods have stopped so for some people they might think oh god i've come this far without here i've got through all those mm. symptoms i've dealt with it but again it's just don't that's not the way to see it you know it's about thinking about those other health benefits and we had a really interesting post on the facebook group actually on the subject about a woman in her late 50s who was suffering joint pain i think she had rheumatoid arthritis uh well she didn't have rheumatoid arthritis she thought yeah. that might be what it had and doctors ruled out everything but none of them ever said oh it could be to, you know as a result of going through menopause and these and then she was put on hrt and within in months she was completely better and that was in her late that- 50s yeah, that is good news, isn't it? You know, and as, we, as we've as we said in many of the programmes, if you listen back through our back catalogue, that it is a preventative medicine. Mm. And once you find out how to get it prescribed, you need to talk to your doctor because not all GPs know how to prescribe it. But there are the nice guidelines um, on exactly how to prescribe it. So it's good to hear that women are taking what we're saying and going to their doctors and mm-hmm. asking about it, even in their later 50s. So if you want to hear more from Dr. Shazadi Harper, we've recorded two podcasts with her as 
our guest. In one, she talks about perimenopause and in the other, she talks about sex and vaginal health during the menopause. So uh, have a look back on the back catalogue of your podcast provider for those. Now, lovely uh, Dr. Harper also has a book out in July called The Perimenopause Solution, which she has written with nutritionist Emma Bardwell. So keep an eye out for that because lifestyle changes can ease symptoms alongside the prescription of HRT, can't they, Trish? They can indeed. It's time to head to Sentimentality Street for a bit of nostalgia loodling. Lorraine, what's up your alley today? Sentimentality Street, what's that? <laughs> Quality Street, but It's different. like chocolates, yeah, exactly. Now, guess what? I've got in my lounge a present we got for Mabel for her 10th yeah. birthday, which makes me feel like I'm very middle class. And I, just, I don't know why, but I feel weirdly guilty about it. I'm, I'm not sure why. We've got a piano, an upright oh, piano for Mabel, which you smart. can rent. Oh, you, you rent see, it, you can rent yes. Them. You can't run. But when I was little, my parents always used to say things like, God, if we were ever rich enough to have a piano. <laughs> anyway, you can rent this piano because Mabel mm. loves it. She loves playing a bit of piano. Um, obviously, I can't play the piano. So I had a little go on mm-hmm. it. And my husband said, that's, um, that's like watching Les Dawson in the variety <laughs> show on a Saturday night. Do you remember Les Dawson? I, I went down oh, such a nostalgia noodle when yeah. he was actually a very good piano player mm-hmm. um, because his career when he was in his teens was playing a piano in a brothel in Paris, oh. apparently. <laughs> That's where he started. Brilliant. Blankety Blank presenter, very famous oh. pantomime dame, obviously, mm. but he is, to me, the definition of deadpan. That piano oh, yeah. playing is yeah. hysterical. <laughs> He started on Opportunity Knocks. Trish, oh, did do you remember he? That? Oh, yes. The old kind of talent shows that they use much better than X Factor, Opportunity Knocks, yes. don't you think? I think so. Definitely. Anyway, I have um, practiced a bit of piano. Yeah. You, Trish, so I will be playing have a any number tinkle? of Coldplay songs <laughs> next time you're I'm over. I'm thinking it might be, we might be a bit more hinge and bracket. Do you remember them? <laughs> Oh, no, don't say that. I'm too stylish and glamorous to be hinge and bracket. Can you think of something? I just think of Elizabeth Hurley lying on that piano while oh, John know, was playing I it know. for Vogue. Let's you have me that to lie on your piano. Okay. No, definitely yeah, not. I'll get myself a glittery Leah to no. you can play it. Where have you been, Dan? Well, I've been back to the street. 70s as well. And I think we've talked a lot about sort of culinary delights and horrors from that area. But we haven't talked about what it was served up in. So Pyrex dishes. Do you remember those? The glass I don't know pyrex- anything about the kitchen. So it's oh, no right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, for, the, for the benefit of our listeners then, because you're not going to be engage- able to engage with this, but they were these glass yeah. Casserole dishes, and they were kind of the lid was glass, and the rest of it's kind of white. And they always have these weird patterns on them, like vegetables. And then they got a bit trendy with these geometric patterns and things. And we had them, and I hated it because usually on a Monday, leftovers day. Oh, yeah. Threaded coming home from school. The Pyrex dish oh, would come out of the oven with some ghastly, sort of overcooked, dried up meat stew. <laughs> Can you imagine putting oh, that on the table with your teenagers oh, now? I know. They'd I say, just... where's my ciabatta to go exactly, with this? Exactly, exactly. Where's my noodles and tofu? But yeah, it was a bit of like old shoe leather in a 
yucky stew. Sorry, mum. Yeah, we had cup saucers, plates, all of it going on. And you can still buy it now. There's a big vintage market for the old Pyrex. They still sell the clear stuff, but they don't do any patterns apart from I found in the American website. Do you know what they do? You'll like this. Yeah. Star Wars. <gasps> Star yes. Wars Pyrex. Star Wars That's made Pyrex. my day, that has. Yeah, exactly. Off you hop onto the website and do a bit of shopping. Thank you very much. Well, all that nonsense and silliness brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and all the midlife women you know. And remember to subscribe on your podcast provider and rate and review us too. And please download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers because that is really super helpful for us. And don't forget to join us on our Facebook group, on Instagram, or email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.